Warning. This podcast will challenge your thinking. Welcome to Business Problems Solved. In this podcast, we help you solve your business problems by providing real examples and practical approaches to make today better than yesterday. Introducing your host, the multi-sector, self-professed, most improved improvement person and qualified business problem solver, Lee Horton. Hey, it's Lee. Welcome to Business Problem Solving. Today is, I guess, a special episode. Episode 200 of the podcast has been going now for just over four years. We've reached 200 um, episodes and it is with absolute great pleasure that I introduce the guest today, Mr. Jim Longton. Welcome to Business Problem Solved and episode 200. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Lee. Good morning. How's everything with you? Yeah, all very good. Thank you very much. All very good. I'm I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Uh, we've connected on LinkedIn. We've had a few conversations, and 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 what I'm what I'm really keen to uh, to understand. Really, I guess first and foremost is for those people who don't know who Jim is, who is Jim, and and how has he got to that seat today? Well, fine. Uh, okay. Good morning again. Well, um, I'm um, I left uh, I left school at 16 years. 16 years old, and um, started an apprenticeship. And during that, during my the the actual apprenticeship years, it was um, I, I sort of realised that there were much better ways of doing things in terms of the interactions between management and supervision and your fellow workers, etc. And so, but just a bit of background before that, I, I left school. At, um, at 16 years old, with one more level, uh, I had a GCSE in, uh, in woodwork. Uh, I had a pretty um, uh, uh, uneventful academic uh, start to my life. And it was, uh, and in fact, although it was only diagnosed many years later, I was uh, dyslexic. Now, back in 1965, when I was 16 years old, um, Dyslexia wasn't really recognised. It wasn't discussed. Anyone with dyslexia was normally put down as just being disruptive, impossible to control, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's sort of the uh, that's the way I left. Um, I left school, managed to get an apprenticeship, because in those days, you know, jobs were plentiful, and particularly apprenticeships. I mean, manufacturing was was a major part of the economy, significantly more than it is today. So that's just just quickly how I started, and so. Um, during my apprenticeship, I um, I started as a general engineer apprentice, and and I didn't like it. But my father, he was uh, he was an engineer, time served guy, and he was you know insistent that I was going to get an apprenticeship, get a trade under my belt, and I had to stick it out. Now the first year, as I say, I was doing a general engineering apprenticeship. Well, most of the first year, and then an opportunity arose for me to take to specialise immediately because the company wanted an apprentice pattern maker. Now, you may not understand about pattern making, but it's a foundry trade. It's, it's akin to, it's in the same level in the hierarchy of, of the engineering trades as, as tool makers. So tool makers and pattern makers are side by side. And it also, it, it, in a way, it appealed to my woodworking sort of only skill, as it were, because I haven't got a clue what pattern making was about, but someone said to me, I was one of my, you know, one of my co-workers, 
said, look, this job's come up and they're wanting it now. You've got to go now because it's not a general job. It's a specialised job. You've got to go and do it for five years. Why don't you go and talk to the foreman in the shop? So I went down the scene because pattern shops were either always in the basement and cellar of a building or in the attic. They were never mainstream. It was always like a necessary evil. So I went down to see the pattern, the pattern shop, and I was I walked in, and I was like completely amazed. I was it was like a revelation to me this 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 whole woodworking activity going on in this huge engineering company. I was one of forty apprentices. Take the day I started, it was I was one of forty apprentices, and that went on year after year after year. a thousand people worked in the company, major company manufacturing printing presses. And I just, I was blown away by this. And, and, he's, and we, I was walking around. And I mean, when you're looking at, it, at patterns being made, it's like furniture. It's, they're, they're absolutely beautiful. They're works of art. So I, st- I started in the pattern shop. And lo and behold, you know, part of the, uh, of the apprenticeship program was you had to go to college. And I went to Bolton. I'm from Chorley. It was handy. I was working in Preston. I used to get the, you know, the train to, and we started doing one day a week and one night. So you did a full day and then you stayed on and did night school. So it was like, it was a long day. You know, you'd start at whatever time it was, 8.30 in the morning. You didn't finish till 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. So it was a long day. But that was the first time that I actually got into and enjoyed education. Yeah. I was completely, I was a sponge. I was soaking up everything. And I did the four, the four, it was a four-year course altogether, finishing when I was 21 years old, coincided with the completing my apprenticeship. And lo and behold, I was getting credits and distinctions and everything. I was just absolutely blown away by it. And so what happened then, at the end of it, I got the opportunity to go on to and do a higher national diploma. And I wanted to do this, and I'll explain the reasons why in a moment, but the problem was you had to do a bridging course because the 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 four years I'd done, I wasn't at sufficient level in terms of maths, chemistry, physics, etc. Because normally the ent- entrance to the course was A level, and so I was short of this because uh, you know I, I didn't have formal A levels. Yeah. So I did the I did the course, <clears throat> and it was um, it was a, a what it was called a bridging course, lasted about four months, and I got through that. And then I started on my on the high national diploma, and basically at the time, the high national diploma was six months in college and six months in work, and the work had to be related to the course. That went on for three years, and then there was a further year of part time study to complete uh, one or two um, uh, endorsement subjects. So I'd gone through this period of my apprenticeship, and then realised that there was definitely a better and different way of doing things than what I'd gone through. To me, it was archaic, the way that, 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 that people spoke to each other, the, the way that management reacted and supervisors, etc. And in fact, I was offered the opportunity when I was 18 and 19 to, to be sponsored by the trade union to go and do a, a trade union course to become a trade union official, which I turned down. Because really, I was thinking that if I could get a, you know, a qualification, I could actually get out of just being, uh, I'm not, being saying this in any derogatory way, but being a tradesman to be able to do something more that I could influence things, yeah. and that was really my driving my driving force. 
I actually went down to Ford at Dagenham as a pattern maker for a few weeks after I completed my apprenticeship, trying to get sponsorship to go on the HND because you needed, you know, it was like you're on your own. So um, anyhow, that didn't work out um, because they didn't, they didn't know me long enough and they were they, they really wanted pattern makers. They didn't want students. <laughs> That's basically what it was. Anyhow, so I started and um, and the first year, I got um, the, the the placement I got. I was I was actually I got this job in in Ashton in Makerfield near Wigan. And the first six months, and it was a, it was a large company, and they had three foundries operations, very large uh, press shops, a lot of stamping and pressing, uh, packing system, you know, packaging, painting. It was a whole integrated company for making the full product from start to finish. Uh, including painting, packing, sales, etc. Worldwide, world, worldwide sales, and so the first year basically was just like a training year, messing about, seeing things, and and I realised pretty quickly that, well, maybe this was the sort of norm because I didn't feel any different doing this job than when I was an apprentice in terms of the you know the the, the, the style or the system, the way it went, and. Um, I went back to college after that six months, and then they, they actually called me back and said, look, you know, you did the, your, your six months ago with us, and we'd like you to come back. So I said, oh, okay. And um, that really was the start of, of, of my sort of journey, if you want to call it that, because I went back and um, I was working then uh, directly for the foundry manager. So I was, you know, and, and I was getting involved and in seeing what was going on with industrial relations and incentive schemes and piecework and bonus schemes and etc i did six months doing all that and learning a lot of technical things as well back to college and then six months later they said look we'd like you to come back again and consider joining us full time because then the last six months was you had to do your last six months industrial training and then you got the job your qualification so i did that and during that time they also then sent me down to a huge operation in Kent, called GKN Kent Allens, which was a very, very large founding group. And lo and behold, it was exactly the same there. I mean, it was like, is this the norm? This must be the norm, the way of doing things. Yeah, so, and, Jim, when you say, is this the norm, what what was happening? What How, how were people being? Well, don't forget, this, this was the 1970s. And the 1970s was a terrible, terrible decade in terms of, turmoil uh within the you know within the country with what's bob you know norman now referred to as, as the winter of discontent which was when margaret thatcher was elected uh, in the conservative government in 1979 and that really brought to the end this decade and i say was that the norm in fact it had been because the origins of what happened during the 1970s were really in the way people had been treated and the way that they were, that workers were treated. And the, what we saw in the 1970s was a culmination, I believe, of all this pressure building up over the years, probably since the end of the Second World War. Then we had the nationalisation, Labour governments, and, you know, it was a lot of people were working for the state because the government was funding huge numbers of industries. And the and but the management just had this 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 attitude, you know, the uh, uh, theory X attitude, 
uh, if any of you have read uh, the human side of enterprise by Douglas McGregor, it was it was it, that was it. It was pervasive everywhere. You know, people came to work, you had a job to do, clock on, do your job, clock off, and go home. Uh, don't you know? We're not interested in anything you've got to say. You, we don't want to involve you. You'll do what you're told to do. And the systems that were put in place to try and control this, with the incentive schemes, bonus schemes, piecework, and all this sort of thing, were really geared at just keeping people working. And so, any issue that arose, even minor issues that arose, immediately led to disputes. And the 1970s was characterised. We became known as the sick man of Europe. We were strikes. There were days, weeks, and weeks and weeks of strikes in all sectors. I mean, it really, the, the you know the start of it was the was the miners in 1973, before the pit closures and all that program started later on, and so the people, the workers, reacted to this 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 system, and the managers and the leaders couldn't couldn't see it. I mean, it was like, and there was it was an absolutely a them and us situation, and so. Talk about change and introducing change. Absolutely. Everything was treated as suspicion. We're not cooperating. It was demarcation, one man, one job, one man, one machine. And this went all the way through the 70s. And so and I was involved in all this. And, and I started to make changes during the 1970s because by the time I sort of finished college and I got my job, and then I got promoted. I started off as a foreman, and then I became a superintendent, and then eventually in that company I became the works sort of, um, not the works manager, but the the general foundry manager of the foundry departments. And um, I started then to realise that, you know, you needed to work with people. You needed to talk to people, include them. If you wanted to change things, normally, if you wanted to change things, it was to improve. You don't change things to make things bad but it was always no we're not changing no no there's nothing wrong with what we're doing yeah and i introduced then what i call the participation uh, committee and this was like very radical in the company because well what do you what do you mean what are you going to do how are they going to participate well i want to discuss things with them and when we're going to make a change i want to sit them down and talk to them and make sure they're on board and and any issues they've got well it doesn't matter what issues they've got no, 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 no. We, you don't. This is weakness. This is weakness. You don't do this. You get in there and you tell them what to do. That's the way we do this. And, if, you know, and I said, well, I disagree because, you know, at the end of the day, we end up with disputes and stoppages and we go right back to where we were before because you give in, you cave in. And, it, you know, and, it's, and, this, was, this, and this was typical because I've, I've seen it certainly when I served my apprenticeship that my 10 years that I spent with GKN in Ashton Makerfield on the secondment when I went to um, Kent Hallows, and in my, even in my brief period at Ford. You don't believe this, but when I started at Ford, I went down, I, got, I had an interview with the personnel department, huge company, Ford, Dagenham. And I got the job because they wanted patent makers. And I had to go down, I went down on the train from Preston, carrying a huge toolbox on wheels, all this sort of thing, no car, no driving. And... I got to the patent shop to start on the Monday morning and the manager of the patent shop, and he was a big, big patent shop, said, oh, right, before you start, you've got to go and see the shop steward and before he, he'll approve you to, to, to start. And I said, well, what do you mean? I said, I've got the job. You take on personnel department. Yeah, yeah, okay. I know what the personnel department are doing, but 
I've got to make sure that this shop runs. And if the shop steward doesn't accept you, you won't be starting. And I said, well, for what reason? He said, well, first of all, you're a member of the union, aren't you? He said, yeah, I'm a member of the union. I'm a member of the patent makers union. And you've you've got all your tools. Yeah, I've got all my tools. Right, well, you you need to see. Because they will not let you start unless they're convinced that you've, number one, served your apprenticeship and you are a tradesman because... If you're not a tradesman, you're not working here. And you'll want to save all your tools to make sure that you've got all the tools that a tradesman has, because if you only come with a, a hammer and a chisel, that's no good. Well, I've got my toolbox with me. And um, and then the other thing, of course, is you had to be up to date with all your union union dues. And and so I went to see the shop steward. I don't know his last name. He was called Dennis, a little, a short little guy he was. Really efficient. It was almost like, I think, what, am I one of you? Or, um, what? And and that was it. And yeah, I got through that. I mean, obviously, I passed them. Yeah. Fine, okay, you're accepted. You can start. You went to see the managers. It's okay. Yeah, Jim can start. And, that, and, I'm thinking, and this was in 1970, right? And look what happened to Ford. I mean, and all the industrial relations problems they had after that. And that was a tiny, tiny part of it. But that was right at the beginning of the 70s. And this got worse as yeah. the 70s went on. And so I had, um, I, won't, I wouldn't say I had a huge amount of success, but when I left uh, that company in the, at the end of the 1970s, and I left in 1979, certainly the areas that had been under my control were a lot, lot happier. They were better. They were more productive. Um, people would come and discuss a problem with you rather than say, right, stop, that's it. We're not working. We're stopping. I mean, strikes used to take place just like that. I mean, you could, the shop shoe would come in and say, we're out, we're going out now. And that, and, and it was unbelievable. I mean, everyone just stopped. Yeah. What, Jim, what, what gave you the confidence to, to try something different and to challenge the norm? Well, the, the, the main, the main, I say that the confidence, number one, I was absolutely convinced and certain that things had to change because if it didn't, it it was just ridiculous to carry on like this. Number two, because I was also, I wasn't your typical manager. I mean, you know, back in the 70s and the 60s, someone from my background would never, ever end up in the, in the positions that I've had over my, over my career. I mean, probably the best you could hope for would be to become the foreman or the superintendent and it was all based on you know on, on practical skills being able to show the men what to do being able to teach the men what to do and there was this barrier it was this invisible barrier oh well you know no first of all he failed his 11 plus he didn't go to grammar school he didn't go to university you know he's, he's, he's not really from the right background you know and 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 this pervaded this was constant throughout you never got on lads like us never ever Never, never made it, you know, up the up the up the chain, and and I think the guys, even though then I was by this time, you know, when I left, I was the founding manager. They realised that I was like really, you can almost say one of them. I wasn't sort of, you know, some silver spoon guy, and I understood them because I understood the fears and the problems and the issues they had and what they were trying to do and their home lives and all and all the important things that we tend to forget when someone comes to work. Look, clock on, leave your brain in that box at the door, 
and just bring your hands and your muscles. And then when you go home, you can collect your brain on the way out and, and go home. And nothing will happen to it. It's secure. No one's going to interfere with it. It's okay. And, and so when you do start talking to them and the things that you want to do, you explain to them and explain why it's important, why it may, you know, why you want to do it, the effect it's going to have on the business, on them. I mean, things like making the job easier. I did a huge amount of work on tech because it was a real physical job. And these, these guys were like, you know, these are ex-miners in the Wigan Coalfield. These, but these weren't pussies. These were, these were tough, tough guys, you know. And, but it was almost as though, well, they, you know, if we're paying them a wage, they've got to work hard. And if you, if you make their life easier, you've got to reduce the pay or reduce the numbers. And that was, that was the, the, the format. I mean, that was the whole part of the function of the work study department, you know, time and motion. And, um, and so when I was working with them and saying, look, we'll do this. And I mean, I put a, mon a whole monorail system in for distributing the, um, the metal. And then, you know, the finance guys were saying, well, what's the payback on this? But I said, well, there's several paybacks. I said, number one, it's a lot easier. So we're not going to keep losing guys the way we, you know, going because it's just show physically hard work. Number two, we're going to get improvements in quality because of the whole number of technical reasons in terms of metal temperature, metal temperature loss and all this sort of thing. And um, and also it'll, it will enable us to, um, to reduce the, uh, to a certain extent, to reduce the level of, inventory in between the times when you make it to port and get it through the system. And so it was begrudgingly accepted, but the, diff the transformation in the industrial relations atmosphere changed completely. By the time I, when the, by the time I left in 79, the last two or three years, I think we'd only had two actual stoppages disputes in, 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 the, in, the, in, in the areas I was running. And that was, they were tied into national issues, not, not, you know, company issues. These were the unions flexing the muscles, right? You know, it's a, we're going on strike now. Everybody in the engineering workers union will be on strike on Monday. And yeah. so it was that type of situation. So I think the confidence I had, I gained my confidence and I knew, I knew when I started, I was right. And I knew if I could do it and get a go at it, I'd change things. And by the time I left in 1979, uh, I was I was very very confident. I knew you know I know I knew what how I could do things, how I could change things, how I could work with people, and um, and then you know, really that was the next phase of my life. The 1970s, I call it my baptism of fire. It was like unless you were there, I mean everyone's oh yeah we all remember the 1970s. No, you don't. I mean you've got to be my I'm 73. I started my management career at 21 when I started at college and doing all my industrial training. And so I was, I was 21. So you've got to be, a, to really understand what was going on as teenagers and kids, you really didn't understand what was going on in the 1970s. But when you were working it, when you were in the middle of it, you knew. And that was, that period of time was honestly, it, I mean, any of, you know, all the, uh, the older people who may listen to this uh, podcast, they, They'll say, "Oh yeah, I remember that." Yeah, he's right. He's absolutely right. Yeah. And then the the nineteen eighties, then, was the transformation. Really, was the trans transformation period. I got a job then. I moved. I got the job with uh, 
a company in, in Todman uh, called, uh, it was called Simon Warman then, and it became Warman International, and now it's Weir Minerals. It's still there, it's still thriving, a very, very successful company. And I was very fortunate because the managing director, Paul Morgan, he was he was um, he was old school, public ex public school officer in the army. He lost his, his foot blown off with a mine in Italy during the uh, Battle of Monte Cassino. I mean, you know, he was, but he was the real. He understood. He understood people. And talking to me during the interview process, you know, he tweaked. He said, you know. It, yeah, you know, I'm I'm fully support your views on things on this, and, and we, you know, I really would like you to join us. And um, so I started there, well, 1979 it was. And true to his word, he he said, you know, just like I want to be kept informed, obviously, because it was the hierarchy, hierarchical system was there. He was the managing director. He didn't go and see the managing director there because he had his board of directors and his managers. So. You were dealing with the, the problem area. The problem area in all this isn't the guys on the shop floor, because the guys on the shop floor, once you can get through to them, once you start talking, will welcome this with open arms. Once you can get rid and eliminate the suspicion, once they trust you, once they, you know, they, they realize that you can talk, that they, you know, they can talk to you and you listen to them. There's no problem with us all. You're pushing at an open door. It's wide open. You don't have to do anything. And the problem is always middle management who, ooh, hang on. We're under threat here. This, you can't mean anything. We tell the guys what to do. We're the experts. They've got to do what they're told. You can't have these guys doing it. What about us? You know, they felt insecure because suddenly things start changing and, and the managing director says, well, hang on, what were you, what have you guys been doing for the last 150 years? Why, why didn't this happen before? So the big fear was always in the, within the middle management, you know, and, and not, not at foreman level because the foreman, you know, they were just one of the guys being paid a bit more because they were a bit smarter. I mean, I always used to find it really strange when, the best guy on the shop floor doing a job, or even anywhere, bricklayer, whatever you want, the best best bricklayer was always made the foreman or the best fitter. And then you lose you lose your best bricklayer and your best fitter because then the guy said, Oh no, he's a foreman now. He can't no, he can't touch the tools. No, he can't touch the tools. It's gotta to be and so it was it was crazy. What you really need is the best leader or the guy that and later on, as I developed my sort of the way my, my my working practice, I used to, I always had to include the the union guys, a shop shooter or whatever, because if you didn't, they were immediately suspicious that you were trying to undermine them. But the people I selected or that were asked to select were not the sort of the stars. I wanted the people, the ones who were always talking to everybody else. There's always this, they don't want to, they always talk, they've got all the ideas. They don't want to be the foreman. They don't want to be the shop steward, but they're under, they're there under, you know, not undermining everything, but they're the opinion that all the guys seek. They don't go to the shop steward. They don't, and they say, hey, Bill, what about this? You know, they ah, oh, well, listen. And and it's like, you know, if he, if he was suspicious, it didn't happen. If he said, I know what you're thinking, but, Look, you know, I think we should give it a go. This because it's, they'll do it, yeah. And so it's that sort of a guy I want. 
and they're the ones that are sought out, not the not the superstars. And so this hot, so and I managed to start this in the uh, at the in the beginning of the uh, as I said the nineteen eighties, and I made. Uh, I, I, can't, I shouldn't say I, we made incredible progress once I got the suspicion out of the way and we started looking at it and we modified the incentive schemes which would I mean basically they just didn't work um, we introduced new technology without any problems we had some issues in the machine shops when we wanted one man to run two machines because that was like back then oh, oh that was like no, you know, no way. It was like you needed um, garlic hanging on the back of the door to keep to keep that one out. But we managed eventually. We managed to do it, and it was really th- when we started to introduce CNC that it became even the guys accepted it. But you see, the thing was, the attitude then was, one man, one machine. If you want me to run two machines, I want his wages. Yeah. So I'll I'll do it, but I want two wages. If you want me to run three machines, I want three wages. And this was the like, this was always stopped it all the time, you know. So that was difficult to get through. But we did. By the end, of, by the time I left, we were in several areas, not not everywhere, because it's like you can't say I want one man to run two machines because you can't do it. There are areas where you can, one man can run two machines or even three machines. And yeah. so we we managed, we got that in by the yeah. time, you know. And so that, that whole company was transformed in terms of the levels of working progress, in terms of deliveries, quality. I mean, throughput times just absolutely tumble from weeks and weeks and weeks. We were, we, were, we were getting pumps out within two weeks, three weeks. And before they were given deliveries of 14 weeks, 15 weeks. I mean, some of the larger ones took longer, but I mean, it was a huge, huge improvement that we, that we collectively yeah. And, the, and the, the, thought, the good thing about that was, you see, by the time I got to, by the end, by the time I was leaving, I was, see, I was in charge of HR. So HR reported to me. It wasn't, you know, so they, you know, they, they reported to me and, and I kept that under control. The work study reported to me, the machine shops, all the operations. And that's where all the, that's where the issues are. They're not in the office with the, you know, with the accountants and the sales guys and the admin people. The problems, the issues, the the improvements that can be made are right down there where the work's going on, where you do it. And so yeah. and that was it. And as a result of that, that was so that wasn't like my second and then and I was then. So so I'm gonna say Joseph, a quick question, Jim, before we move on to your your I guess your 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 third stage. If knowing what you know now, what one piece of advice would you give into given to yourself coming out of your second um stage of your career? Well, I think <clears throat> the advice I would give to myself really is that it, it all depends on what's gone before. Because you could have tried this and failed absolutely miserably because, not because of any of your, your own ability or your own belief system, because of what was above you, the, the block, the stop. And so I think the, what, the advice I would give anyone now starting on this journey is that if you're going to change jobs you need you need to get you need to get some success under your belt now when you've done that move for opportunities thinking back that's what i've always done i've, ne- I've never actually i was talking to my wife the other day. <clears throat> i've never left a job for more money i've never gone down there oh look at this they're paying 
this much more, I can do that job, I'll apply for it. I've never done that. Um, I've always thought of, well, there's an opportunity here to carry on doing what I'm doing. No, obviously, I'm not going to work for nothing. Yeah. Uh, but I never, I, I've, I've never, ever simply just chased higher and higher and higher salaries. Because if you do that, you end up in situations in companies where that's all that matters. And they treat the people in exactly the same way. If they don't perform, they get fired. It's not a matter of, well, can we, how can we improve the performance? No, if they can't do it, get shut of them. There's plenty more. There's plenty more. We get somebody else in. Yeah. And, and so in terms of, you know, that's, and ever since then, really, since that sort of, that, that, that's, you know, the end of my second phase, if you want, of my, of my career, <clears throat> I've never, I've, I've always done that. I've always looked for opportunities. Or if opportunities have come along, I've assessed it in terms of, well, what can, can I do? What can I do? I yeah. know I, I'm, I'm very highly qualified and very, very capable. Technically, I can do every job, every job in, the, in, in my industry. Um, but that's not what it's about. Yeah. It's about getting everybody else to, be, to do the job, every, pulling all that knowledge out of everybody that, you know, that works for you. I mean, my last job, I, I had 1,800 people yeah. um, I was responsible for in different sites. And so imagine that, 1,800 brains, 1,800 contributions to to what you're trying to do. If you, if you free them up, I mean, imagine the power of that. Wow. Yeah. And this wow. was always this was always missed, you see. No, yeah. no, no, no. Just we all want to work. Just work. <laughs> we don't want this. We don't want the brains. Yeah. It's dangerous. <laughs> work. All we want you to do is work. And so Amazing. that really that that and that's what I would say in terms of where I was at the yeah. end of the uh, when I got when I entered the third phase, which was which was the most um really the most satisfying and exciting and um, rewarding part, I would say, of my, you know, of my, of my career. Yeah. So um, the, at the end of the um, at the end of the nineteen eighties, the I was headhunted uh, to to join a, a large company, a large company in the in, in the steel foundry uh, business. Uh, it was a company that was rapidly developing due to uh, a large program of uh, acquisitions. And um, I got a call from a headhunter and got chatting to him. And, uh, and they had this, uh, this, this job, which I really, I suppose, immediately saw then as another opportunity because um, I was being recruited, not because of my if you want to call it HR abilities or my the success I've had with people, as it were, over the last previously 10 years, I was being recruited because I had, uh, you know, a, a reputation in terms of a technical reputation and a manufacturing reputation. So I, uh, the job I was uh, offered and accepted was, uh, was the combined role of, of technical director and, uh, operations director. It was a dual role because we were doing, going through a huge reorganization or consolidation process. And um, and so um, I accepted that job. And uh, um, it, well, it's, to say it was a challenge, I mean, it was a huge challenge because 
the 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 operation um, had um, well. I mean, the first thing that sort of hit me when I was when I was going around was number one, the huge amount of uh, of uh, working progress now. Okay, now it depends if that maybe an old term that people use or inventory. Well, it's well, I regard you know it, it's pro, it's processed inventory, so it's everything that's in process from you know the first stage to the final stage before it well including when it goes into the uh, into the warehouse or dispatch and there was there was like 14 weeks of work in progress uh and, and this is in an industry where you're trying to probably offer deliveries of about i suppose 7 8 weeks would would, would be acceptable back in those times don't forget this was like 19 79 1980 and so that was that was a huge issue and of course the old uh, the industrial relations uh, situation as well and um, and so really <clears throat> and there was a lot of technical issues in, in, in terms of scrap a lot of the work that was there waiting to be processed was that was going to be scrapped there was all sorts of issues in terms of you know technical issues regarding the scrap, and that was really where my that, that was where my focus had to be initially, trying to get this um, this level of uh, of working progress down because it was tying up vast amounts of of cash, and also when you're in a situation like that, you don't know you've got a problem until you do it. Now, if you start working on something that's been going through for 14 weeks and you find a problem. You've probably made another fourteen weeks of problems, so that was that's where my my focus was on this, not really on the on the sort of you know the things I really wanted to to do in terms of the industrial relations and the people involvement, etc. Whatever you want to talk about. So <clears throat> the so the first probably um, you know eighteen months or so was spent really focused on this. And then as I started to get make some inroads, by no means uh, getting to where I wanted to be with that, but we started to get some procedures in in terms of, you know, quality control. Uh, and, and I relied heavily quite a lot on the work I'd done on quality circles earlier on in my, you know, in the previous, when I was with uh, my previous company, I'd done quality circles and team briefing. And, you know, it, it, was, it was good, but it was really... I was frustrated. I just didn't have the attraction to really get because I was firefighting all the time. That was the problem. Yeah. And yeah, things started to improve. And then I think that the, the, the big, the major sort of time for me on this one, the, the light bulb moment or whatever you want to call it, is that the MD called me in one day and said, "Look, I've been to uh, I've had a, I've been to a seminar with a with, and uh, with a guy called Sid Johnson." Um. And I've invited him to come down and talk to the to the directors. And I think you're going to really find it interesting because you know a lot of what you, you, we've we've and he was a, the, the MD was a switched on guy as well. Um, is you know exactly what Sid Sid's been talking about on these seminars that he's been running. And yeah, Sid, Sid Johnson came down and we talked to us, and, and I thought, wow, this <laughs> he is you know this is exactly what I've been looking for because it was just saying all the things that I believed in, uh, but 
the most important thing was his techniques and how he developed his techniques. I think someone in the meeting had said, so what are your tricks? And he said, tricks? No, 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 no tricks. That's no, we don't, we don't talk about tricks. Because if you start talking about tricks, you'll turn everybody off. This is not a trick. This is not a trick, you know. These are techniques and, and, and tried and tested techniques. I think it was an accountant who said, who said tricks. It wasn't anybody, you know, typically yeah. accountant. Oh, what's the, what, what are the tricks to doing that? But anyhow. And so we agreed that we would run a series of uh, workshops. Now, I mean, it was it was a large company. We probably, I think, 720, I think it was, employees. The bulk of those guys, uh, uh, people, um, on the shop floor with, with several different uh, divisions. We were making about, well, the install capacity was probably about 17,000 tons a year. We never, ever got to that. But we were making about 400, between 400 and 420 tons a week. So you can imagine... 14 uh, weeks of, of work in progress, multiply that by 400, and you can imagine just how it was a big site, but you can imagine how much work there was around there. So, we, we actually decided on that we would the best way to do it, talking with Sid, would be because of the size of the business and the integration between all the different departments, because it was, it was, um, very, it was, it was in process, you know, step after step after step after step one job and then the next and move on to the next one and move on to the next one until you finally got to the uh, you know the end of the line that really to in, to get all this integrated we need we would need to do we needed five workshops and what the way we did the workshops was that we saturday we arranged it for saturday and sunday well the first thing and i had with the md i, I said look <laughs> the people we want to get on this you know the first thing you say well we want you to come and onto this course because that's what they called it yeah. um on saturday and sunday so i said don't get into any arguments with them about saying it's going to be for their benefit already tell them you'll pay them overtime because the first question that these guys will ask the first question is well are we going to get paid for it yeah and if you say no 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 you're not we're not going to pay you we're going to improve you we're going to make your life better and we're going, to, we're going to enjoy coming to work. They say, well, you know what they say. It's yeah. too pol- I'm not going to say it. On a <laughs> so I said to the, to the MD, before we even start, because that's the first question. I mean, and, and I probably, I don't even want them to ask it. And I said, oh, by the way, you will be paid for doing this because the first, so you preempt it. So we agreed that, that we paid them. And so there was, no problem then in terms of the people that we selected because what argument could they have the only argument is no i don't want to work the free time i don't want to work saturdays and i don't want to work sundays and in fact that's not the case because they work any bit of overtime they could get yeah to get more money so that wasn't the case and the fact and the you know going to to a hotel and stopping overnight because everyone stayed overnight and we made sure there was a pool table and darts and all this, you know, all the sort of things for them to be paid for doing that. Woo, this was like amazing. So we arranged the five um, five programs and um, and that's it. That's how we kicked off. And as I say, um, you know, the, the, the techniques and Sid's enthusiasm 
and the way that he he got people involved and interested in this and 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 the the, the steps that we went through was really it was absolutely um i was completely to me i, I felt oh, i've missed out on so if i'd only known this when i've been struggling all the way yeah. Um, in my way of doing things, I mean, my way of my way, the way I did things and the way Sid did things, it was it was exactly the same. But it was how he he could do it. I mean, I I was struggling to achieve it, and Sid, his techniques. Yeah. Uh, what were some of the techniques steps. that were different? Well, it's the it's first it's, first of all, it, it's breaking down the barriers because it's um you know. It, it, People are suspicious. If, if you, as a manager, as a director of the company, go in and, and start talking to people, saying, "Oh, we want to, we want to change things, and we're trying to make things a lot better, and we want to make sure that we can deliver sooner, and we want to improve our quality," they are suspicious because they think immediately, "What, what more do they want us to do?" You know, it's, it's, it's us. That, you know, we're the one. They know we're the ones that do this. So. If they want to do all this, it means that we've got to do more. And this is where the suspicion is. And then, you know, it comes, we can't do any more than we're doing. And that's it. I mean, we're working hard enough. It is. They want, us, well, they want us to work harder now, even harder. They want us to work. And so, you know, with, with I mean, the sort of, and the format I've used since, I mean, when we got the guys together, and, there, and there, as I said, there were five groups. There were probably maybe... 25 i think possibly in, in the groups but they were they were mixed so you'd have foremen managers there'll be a union representative always in there because he wanted to be in there but the, but the bulk of them were got the guys you know doing the job yeah all the core makers all the different processes that we had and they weren't all in one department because then you say oh well it's the molding part department that's got the problem because it's not it's everybody's got the problem and then so bringing in people from different areas where they'd never worked before, then talking about the common problems, this was, oh, I think, no, but, yeah, but we keep having to weld this hole up here. Oh, that's it. We can fix that. No one ever told us. No one ever told us about that. That's simple. And so it was these sort of interactions that started taking place. And, 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 and the way Sid kicked this off was that, it was it, it, the, the the sort of the it was like look, I want to talk to you about you know motivation in in our group. What 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 makes you what makes you do what you want to do? What helps you do what you want to do? You know what motivates you when you come to work? What motivates you? And so this this is this the starting off point really because of course money the first so you have a brainstorming. Right, come on, let's you know, let's get everybody who sits writing everything down on the board, all the things. What motivates you? So the, the first thing is always money. Okay, I'll write money down. I used to write it in big letters, money in big letters on the thing. Anything else? Um, overtime. Oh, overtime, which is money. Uh, and then anything else? Well, and we're quiet then. You're thinking it's only money. No, yeah. come on. And so Sid would start to talk about different things he, he related a lot of things to one instance was like the first world war and he said you know would um what would how much would i have to give you for you to kill yourself you see 
well, of course, it's, and it's, and well, no, no one would do that. No one, and so he relates. He's very good storyteller. He relates, and he talked about Passchendaele, and you know, the first time. Well, they introduced what they call pals brigades. The Charlie pals were there. Yeah. The pals brigades, and very sinister, very very sinister. This the way that they, the psychologists that worked on this, they were really sinister guys. They realised that if they collected everybody from, let's say, I don't know, not the whole of Chorley, well, yeah, Chorley, as an example, and they put them all together in one battalion, one brigade, they then became, they all knew each other. They all knew each other's families, kids. They all, in those days, probably most of them worked within about eight or nine or ten different places in Chorley, different factors. So everybody knew everybody else. And they knew the streets. They knew everything. You put them in, stick them in the trench, and say, right, lads, you know, over the top. This is the leader. Over the top, lads. This is the leader at the back. I'm right behind you. Over the top. So, and they go charging forward. The first time that the British regiments had ever taken 90% casualties because they walked, they went on into the machine gun fire. They, none of them would turn back. Previously, the max, the highest number they'd ever had in this sort of trench warfare was probably 40%, maybe. And when that happened, they all le- legged it back. They ran. Now, of course they did. We're not having any more of this. It's 90%. And this was... The sinister part of this was there's two, two very powerful motivators at work. Pride and shame. None of them wanted to go back as the only one. If, if 90%... They didn't want to go back to the to Charlie and say, and they would say, well, what, was was the other was the other ninety percent were there? Oh, well, they 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 all they're all dead. They all died, and it, that psychology you see. And so Sid then starts to bring these things in. I think I said, you know, and and, and I've I've used this technique so many times now, and um, and so when you get them to thinking about this pride and shame and you know there's a whole bunch of things and i mean and the last time i did it i mean i did it with several groups and then this is a sort of a, a thing i don't know if you can please this, oh, yeah. this is this is a whole list of i had i did a, a five-day workshop this was in a company in south africa actually this one was and i was and i was running the company so i've always had my been most successful when i've been in ch- calling all the shots when I've got to report to a boss who you have to get permission to do what you want to do, that's always a problem because unless he switched on, it will never ever happen. And so this is what this and so this is not from one meeting. This I caught everything I put on the board, I then put onto one list at the end of the week, and this was it. Yeah. And 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 the and, and the point I made about this was that okay, money's on there, nice and big money and overtime, etc. But it's limited. You, you, you can't keep giving money because there's only so much money. And if I give you money now, in a month or two months or six months, it's gone. You, 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 it's no longer a motivator because now you want your next lot of money. But all these other things that you've told me motivate you, all these things, religion, love, being safe, involvement, improvement, promotion, training, honesty, working conditions, all the things that they said, will motivate me for free. 
yeah. and and limitless. There's, they're, they're infinite. They can go on forever. There's no end to them. And 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 those are and you've got all those now. Now money is important, but it's not. It's a very important. It's a very powerful motivator, but it's in very very short supply. <clears throat> and so it's and and then you get so you start to change the mindset. And they start thinking, and they're not just thinking about money. They're thinking about, well, you know, you know, pride in my workmanship. If I'm sending something that needs repairing, five steps down the thing, you know, that's, you know, that's affecting me. How can I be, how can I be proud of doing that? I, in fact, I should be ashamed, really, of sending something down that's not right, and someone else has got to fix it, and. But that's just one, the pride and the shame thing is just one thing. And so you start to get them to think differently. And then from then on, um, you know, I'm not sort of talking about the tools. Because when I was doing this with, with Sid, this was in 1989. So we're going back a few years now. And this was before he did his very successful TV series, Sid's Heroes, and his book, I mean, if anybody's never read that, it's worthwhile reading, because these techniques, not in finite detail, because it's, it's a book, show exactly what he did and what he attempted to do in five or six different companies. Uh, that um, the um, And it wasn't calling then. The word lean had never been used. So I think the first documented uh, it was something like 1991 when it was actually appeared in a phd paper that some guy had written in the states and he called what we're talking about now lean but this is really referring to probably what be, you know became the tpn the toyota production system which everybody talks about of course and so lid never called it you know he didn't call it it wasn't called lean yeah. but it was lean and so all the the tools that everyone talks about now probably had different names, but they were there in terms of, I mean, I've got photographs of within four weeks of foremen and managers on the shop floor with, um, you know, with Ishikawa diagrams, you know, cause and effect fishbone diagrams on, on boards with the guys on the, the workers on the shop floor standing there looking at the, you know, the problem and then the cause and effect. And this was in four or five weeks after we did this. So, and, and, and now we just, that was just simply called, you know, a cause and effect diagram as part of, a continuous improvement program or a waste elimination program. Um, Kaizen. And, yeah. and we explain what Kaizen meant, you know, improving goodness. And and it, it, when you start talking to them and you get them over two days and then you throw in a few problems, well, look, we've got a problem. You know, the guy in the fettling shop says this and everything. And so, you know, and, it's a, and he says, you know, it's a problem that's caused in the core shop. And there's some of them in the core shop there. And he said, well, why is it causing a problem? Well, because, and they explain, you know, the problem he's got. And the core maker, or the molder, or the fettler, whatever, they can put it right. Not the managing director who walks around every day being polite, saying, morning, morning, morning. And he says that just because that's what managing director, but he ain't really interested in because if anyone says, "Oh, I've got a problem," oh, uh, we, uh, fine, yeah, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll send, I'll send Billy down. He'll, uh, he'll have a word with you about that. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. <laughs> Off as fast as you can go, because yeah. you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to make the decisions. And so the guys knew it, and and it's like they, they go, "Oh, 
And they don't cost them anything to make it right. They don't have to work any harder. They just have to be diligent and they just have to think about the consequences of what they're doing when they say, oh, it'll be all right. They can fix it in the fettling shop or they can fix it. Well, they can, but that takes huge amounts of money. Fixing things, repairing things, having to remake. Them. And then we start talking about the costs of doing all this. And then, you know, because we're normally having an accountant there and they're you know, talking about all the red recovery and all this. And But no, this is what we're paying because, you know, if we pay for all the material to make something and then it's scrapped, it's not just, oh, we're scrapping that, whatever it is. It's all the labour that's gone into it. It's all the electricity. It's all, and these guys could give them the numbers. And then the, then the, the people are, wow. You see? And then, we can, and then, you know, so this is where the money goes. This is why we can't keep giving you more and more and more money because we're, we're throwing it away all, on all these other things just to get whatever we get out of the door at the end of the day. Yeah. So then we start to talk about the techniques then, of, you know, of, of how we can do it, you know, regular meetings, um, visual management, getting some charts up there, showing what's going on, being open and, and, trans, and transparent in terms of telling the company, telling the workers, what, how much money we're making. Not only tell them when we lost money, because that's what you normally do. You better get everybody together. We've had a bad month again now. And then it's a bollocking, you know. Look at what's happened here. We did this, we did this, we did this. We've lost money. And this is, and, but it never, they never get, bring them together and say, right, everybody get together. We've had a fantastic month. We've yeah. made 400,000 pounds profit. All our customers are, are happy. We never tell them that. Yeah. All we tell them is bad news. Yeah. I had a huge meeting in South Africa one, uh, to tell people the, the good. I thought it's only bad news these guys get. I had this huge meeting, and South Africa is a very difficult place to manage. To manage. That must that's a subject of another podcast of discussion. But I gave a whole bunch of people good news about how we'd done, and and then the meeting. I, I was so I so great. And then I was walking out of the meeting and no one moved. No one. There were supervisors, managers, and I said, well, we're, we're done. Oh, well, then what's the problem? So we were waiting for the bad news. <laughs> We've never had, thanks very much, but there must be a catch to this. There's something we're waiting for the, the left hook coming in now. Yeah. Yeah. You've shook our hand. Where's the, where's the where's, you know? No, I just thought I'd let you know how things are going. There's other things, of course, we've got problems. You know all the problems we've got. You don't need me to stand here and tell you of the problems. You know every problem we've got. You know problems that I don't know anything about. You know where every single problem is. So why do I need to get you together and tell you what the problems are, where we're falling down? The guy in the shipping knows how much he's shipping. He can tell me. Yeah. We're going to have a good week or we're going to have a bad week. He knows that by Tuesday. Why do I need an accountant to tell me that a month later? Oh, you had a lousy, you had a lousy, you had a lousy week, week 25. And the shipping guy says, well, I told you that on Tuesday, week 25. But no one asked me. And, and the inspectors and the quality guys, and they all know, everybody knows. You don't have to tell them. And all this is all about, he's saying, well, come on, tell us. Right, sit, let's sit down and start working through the problems. 
And that's basically what, that was the lesson, that I powerful lesson I, I, I learned from Sid. And, and after that, we, the, the transformation we made in that company in terms of, you know, all the areas that we looked to the extent that I was able in the, the, the final uh, year before I left that organization to introduce, because it was, it was a, a profit share, <coughs> a profit share scheme. I had agreement with the chairman of the company. <clears throat> it was also the, like the group manager. It was a big organization. He said, well, I don't, you know, I don't want you giving all, all these people our money. I'm, you know, you've got to, and the budgets were always set. They were always real tough budgets. Um, so, you, you, you know, you've, 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 I'll agree with you, but you're not, you've got to hit this budget. And then we can, you know, we can look at sharing it. And it wasn't a percentage or anything like that. I knew what would help me in terms of, and it was, and the, the, the incentive scheme was on the shop floor as well. It wasn't in the offices, the admin and all the rest of it. And, and I knew what sort of level would, 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 you know, make them think it's worthwhile. Because it's not good saying, you know, we'll give you, do all this and then we'll give you, you know, £25 bonus. You think, well, no, because if we're trying to save overtime to reduce costs, 25 quid, I earn that on a a, a Saturday morning. I get it. And if I work Sunday, it's 50 quid because it's double time. So whatever they are, I'm not, why should I work? 25 quid's nothing. And I tried to, so I mean, I made it significant. I said, look, this is the budget that we've got to achieve. And I'm going to tell you every single month how we're doing, even though you probably all know in terms of if it's going to be good or bad. But I'll tell you every month how much money we've made, at the profit level we've made, and how much is accruing in the pot. So number one was we had to, achieve the budget that had been the, 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 the corporate budget. Yeah. And that was that was a starting point. And so and it started off it, it started off, you know, obviously we've got pretty close to budget or just under and, and and we were looking at well why haven't we done it? You know, why didn't we do it? And then the interest then when you when they can tr- when they trust you, you see, when they when you talk to them and and they know that you're not conning them that you're not trying to cheat them. The people, it's called respect and trustworthiness. And they can, that's, that's all you really need. And so I used to spend a lot of time going through it. And people have come in during the week and you know, this, this has just gone wrong now. And, you know, if we'd done this and if we'd fixed this, because it happens every three weeks, the same thing. And, and, it's these, and they start, it's, this is the feedback you get. And they get really upset then if you don't do anything. Because it's like, hey, come on, you've got, you know, they put pressure on the management. And this is where you get the big issue in the middle with all the managers who have been doing it this way forever. And suddenly their feet are held to the fire by the guys saying, hey, come on, get this fixed. Come on, you know. And then this is where, you know, we don't want any more of this. We don't want this. And they're the ones that you've got to watch. They're the ones that will destroy it. If you're not careful, they'll work subtly under under the radar, putting obstacles in your way. And, and that's why it's absolutely essential that the top guy is 100%. If he's not, it will not, it will not work because the middle management will destroy it. So unless they, 
the CEO, the boss, whoever it is, is actually 100% committed. And that's why lean, so-called lean initiatives fail. You'll get, you know, an MD or a CEO seeing um, a presentation. Oh, God, we've got to do that. Lean. Wow, yeah. Right. Get some consultants in. Okay, yeah. now, listen. Uh, I want you to do lean. Can you can you go and do lean for us? Oh, yeah, sure, yeah. This is how much it's going to cost. Yeah. And here's the, the all what we do. There's the, here's the course. And it's all it's all cut and pasted from things they've done before. And it looks good. They've got little sketches and things. Workers working on. And the MD says, well, brilliant. Get it. Go and do it. Go and do it. And it don't work. It doesn't, I mean, everyone gets fired up, particularly at the shop lot, for law level. And then after two months, three months, four months, they say, this is nothing's changed. Yeah. Nothing's changed at all. We're still being stopped from doing what this guy came in, this consultant, and told us all about this, and it sounded fantastic, but nothing's changed. And that's why it fails. And then Lean gets a bad name. The MD says, Oh, bloody crap. All this stuff about lean and Japan Japanese techniques and all these Japanese words. Bloody hell, it doesn't work. Doesn't work. Yeah. Let's get back to plain English and get them in. Bloody get working, never mind. So that was my my lesson. Uh, and just with regard to the, uh, to the to the to the incentive scheme, at the end of that year, all the people the people involved in in that with the profit share, you want to call it the profit share, but the the distribution of the money that we made, they got um, seven hundred and fifty pounds each. Wow. And um, that was in nineteen. That was in the financial year. 1990, April 1990 to April 1991, or it may have been the year before that. It was certainly after my I, I did all my work with Sid Johnson. Yeah. In uh, it finished in like September 8, 1989. So it would have been the, the first f full financial year after that. Yeah. And then um, and then I was asked by the company to uh, to to go over to the because we had operations in the United States, and, and and I left I left that company, and I went to work in the United States, and then subsequently left the company completely and started working for um, um, a, a large U.S. corporation. And, you know, my wife was over there; the kids still were at school in the United States. Um, we lived just outside. Uh, well, we lived in Toledo, Ohio, for a period of time, and then we moved to Chicago. And um, and and then I started working for um, uh, a very large American organization. You know, we could say, in a way, that's the next next phase. So yeah, be before we before we talk about the next phase, um, how did you change following, I guess, Sid's intervention with you? What did you do different following Sid's intervention versus what you did before? I came, I became a lot more tolerant. Um, it's difficult to, you know, it, it, if you've, if you, in your working life, if you've been brought up as an apprentice or, and the, you're in a situation where if something goes wrong, you're shouting at all the time, that becomes the norm. And then, you move up a bit and you may become the foreman yourself one day. And you think that's the way, that's what happens. 
when something goes wrong, you shout at your people, you get angry and you shout. And that's an interesting fact, and this was going back in the in the 80s when this one came up, that 62% of people who were abused in childhood go on to be abusers themselves. Now, I'm not just talking about sexual abuse. I'm talking about being severely disciplined, being smacked or with by your parents, being shouted at, being deprived, being locked in cupboards, uh, all the, the horror stories that you hear. Yeah. That as adults, they 62% of them do it to their own children. Now, wouldn't you think that was impossible? Wouldn't you think that being brought up in that situation, you would never, ever, ever abuse anyone yourself yeah. because you would understand. But it's, it's almost like a conditioning. And it's like, well, this is, this is the norm. This is, this, is, this is the way it is. This is what happens. And a lot of that actually comes over into, into industrial relations and into supervision and management and leadership. And this is, you know, very much highlighted in in a certain way in um, in in the book I mentioned before, the uh, human side of enterprise, that people form a view of of uh, of, of, of people yeah. that people don't want to work, they're lazy, they only work because they have to work. If they can avoid work, they will work. And so that's, therefore, if, if people are like that, you've got to behave in a certain way to those people to make them. And that's so it's discipline, it's incentive schemes, it's firing people, it's dispute procedures, all that is to make people because they don't, they don't want to work. But it's not the case, is it? Because, so when does that tr transition make? If you are like that now, if I'm like that with my people, and then suddenly, and I believe that, and then I start my own business, and I'm working eight hours a week, worrying, not sleeping. Have you made a transition from being that's, that, that type of attitude called theory X? Suddenly then, when I'm doing it off for my own, I'm not, I'm, suddenly I've transitioned. But only me can transition. All those other people are still exactly the same, lazy, idle, they don't want to work. So I, that, that, thing, that fascinates me. That's one of the things that I've never really got right down to the bottom of yet. But, but And so I was tainted by this to a certain... I mean, quite often I'd revert to type, if you want to call it type, and say, not having that from this guy, no. And, and I've made some... There are things that I, am, I regret in my, in my life that I've done, that I've done to people. Um, and I wish I could go back and undo it, but you can't. Uh, not, a, not a huge amount. And so I think, to me, what it was, it was, it was I, had, I, I had to become more tolerant and, 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 and so many, many times in this. It's not simple, you know, this. Um, well, it is simple. It's very simple, but it's not easy because it's so easy to say, God, get him. you know, he's done this or... They've done that, and 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 think you know what can I do? You know what's the you know what can I do to punish them about you know? And so it's it, it, and that's a human that's a that's a human response, and it takes a lot of time. And that's one of the things that that I, I got out from all the work that I did. I became more account you know I got a count to ten, right? 
Amazing. Well, thank thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. Right. Shall we shall we talk about your the, the fourth stage? So yeah, the, the the fourth stage, if we if we want to call it that, was um I was over in the in the United States and um um I w- I was living there because of the involvement with my previous company when I was um again approached by a very, very large American group. It was called uh, NACO, NACO, that stands for National Castings. And the reason that I was called in um, was because this was 1990, um, 1993, was it? 1993, and the Mississippi River had flooded. And it was a huge, huge flood. I mean, at some points, the Mississippi River was 14 miles wide. And mass devastation and this this particular company had knew me the chairman of the company a guy called Josea um had known me for um had heard about me and apparently told me he'd been following me I don't know what that means following me for several years and actually I met him for the first time in Toledo he was driving through and he wanted to have a chat with me and so I, I met him that was in the sort of the May of 1993 and he was a great guy and and then in June I think it was June June or July June maybe what June or July that's when the Mississippi flooded and he called me and said look we've got massive problems Jim um one of the the plants has been completely inundated with water on the side, uh, Keokuk, Iowa, right on the side of the Mississippi River. And it's under 14 foot of water. And we've got all our customers that, have, that we've got working that plant, screaming, they're, they're behind on the deliveries, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, so what I've done, I've, um, I've organized a whole diving company to come in. And we know roughly where things are, but these divers are going down with the big helmets on and everything, and air pipes, and they're just putting chains around because they can't see anything. It's completely black, muddy water. But we lower them down because we know the the area, and then they're just wrapping chains around anything they find, and then we hoist it up, and we don't know what we're getting, and we, and then we put it. We've got a big barges and things, and then we move it over to the side. And he said, but the plant's completely, and I've got to get all this work finished, and I can't do it anywhere else. But I've got a plant in Chicago, uh, in in Cicero. That's a real tough area as well, (laughs) Cicero, Illinois. And um, that's where Al Capone's from. And um, so he said, what I want you to do, if you join me, I want you to go over there to, to, to Cicero. And when the plant stops at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm shipping over at the beginning of the week. I don't know. There must have been like three quarts loads of guys coming over from Keokuk, Iowa. Now, Keokuk, Iowa is out in the boonies. It's like, you know, it really is the uh, not hillbilly country, but very rural. <laughs> and uh, and all these guys used to come over on a Monday. And then when the plant, the big, this big plant in Cicero stopped at two o'clock, these all these guys then went into the plant, took over all the equipment in the plant, and started to finish off all this work that was coming over from uh, by truck from uh, from Iowa. Worked through the night until six o'clock in the morning when the 
the day shift started in, in the normal production in the plant, and then they all went to bed, and then and so and he said, I need somebody uh, who can organize all this because the supervision and the management down there don't want as far as they're concerned this is just a bloody problem they don't want they do not want this problem yeah. and so and he's somewhere in, completely independent who's got some common sense and uh, who can do this and then he said i'm sure that you can would you do it so i said yeah sure i'll have a go and that was the start of my career and probably the job that really I enjoyed best. I wouldn't say it was. The, it's not. It wasn't the most rewarding job I had. I don't mean financially in terms of good feelings, but it was the best job I ever had. It was a great company. I mean, Jose was the basically the owner of the company, and um, so we got over this. We got all these things. We eventually sorted out. The river went down. They cleaned the plant out, and everything went back to normal. And he said, "Will you join us full time?" So I said, "I'd love to do." Yeah. And so, really, <laughs> there again, it wasn't, and I didn't really put a lot of my, you want to call it expertise, industrial relations or whatever, into this, this next phase of my life. But I learned a hell of a lot. And um, so I was, I was, I was, I was, I was a point, I was given the, the, um, the title of corporate business, director of corporate business, yeah development or something like that and really i mean the first sort of phase was going around the different plants that they had because we plants it was a big mexico several plants in in canada in um, in the united states canada uh, we were involved with the early stages of, of of china so it was it was a it was a big operation but what he wanted more than anything was to establish a european division or a business so he said, um, you know, I want you're the guy to do this, obviously, because you've got all this experience and you know, you know all about the jobs in Leeds and in Topperton and everything else. He'd obviously done a lot of research, I mean, I guess. And he said, so I think you're the ideal guy to set up our business in Europe. So can you get on with it? And it was like, oh, right. And, and we didn't have anything. In, the only thing we had in Europe, classed as Europe, was a licensee. Um, in in the UK, and that was it was the old BSC British Steel Corporation who used to make products. The products that we made were all for the railway industry. Yeah. They were bogies. They were we we made wheels, cast out steel wheels, side frames and bolsters. These are the bogies systems that go under the, under freight wagons. You know the wheels and the axles and all that. Bit couplers, huge business. I mean, at our peak, we were making um, one thousand tons of steel castings a day. Wow. So you can imagine it, this was a big, big operation. That's anybody from the foundry industry who's listening to something. Wow, a thousand tons a day. So it was big, many, many sites. And so I got stuck in sorting, you know, this business, this European business. And so one of, there was one or two companies that had been in trouble, and they, they contacted Joe, and Joe said we need to go and talk to them. And basically, what we did, what we started to do. We, we made some acquisitions then, started making acquisitions in Europe. So we bought a plant in the UK, well, in England. We got a plant in Scotland. We bought a plant in Portugal, in Lisbon, Portugal. These, these were manufacturing plants to start 
you know, replicating the work that was being done in the States. It wasn't all railway. There was also what we call floor products. We used to make a lot of valves and pumps, uh, uh, components, castings for valves and pumps. And so we started to make these acquisitions and put these companies together. And then we opened an office in Sweden, in Germany, Czech Republic, and we put all this together then as a group. And I, I was, I became the, the the group managing director for for this for this division. And so the problem was then I was involved in like I was, you know, everything. So I, I was technical sales, not doing it all myself, but I was like everything was my sort of. I wasn't just looking at operations where I'm really more comfortable with. So, and product development. And so the individual companies that we're buying already have their own management structures and way of doing things and managing directors. And you know what I'm going to say next? <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, because some of these are like extreme theory X guys. Some yeah. of them were okay. You got the whole problem with the, you know the the middle management and the workers and 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 I'm and I knew I just you know, we could do so much better because you know in terms of deliveries meeting deliveries and quality of things but I was more or less again I was right in the middle of like a whole firefighting uh, situation and that was that was it was the best job I had in terms of the way I felt about things because it was a fantastic company to work for brilliant company to work for but the frustration was not being able to do because I, because I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't be everything to, to everyone. You know I mean? Yeah. Portugal, completely different culture in Portugal, Scotland and the, and England were all not a problem. Czech Republic. And we, we developed some major supplies in the Czech Republic. They were extreme, extreme uh, theory X guys because they're former communists. And I mean, that was like, you know, it was people just didn't people didn't that people were there to do what they were told to do and etc. And that was a real, um, uh, you know, big issue. It was there was no not, none of the things that I talked about and was interested in would be like what that was been like you know completely alien. That was something that came from Mars. And they, 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 and we never had even been there yet. Why is this guy coming back here from Mars with all these ideas? And so. It was, but we didn't own those companies. They were major suppliers. And so it was almost impossible to influence the industrial relations, et cetera. But um, easier, obviously, in, in, in England and Scotland. Portugal, again, was, was difficult because the, um, the, the situation in Portugal is that they come out of the revolution in 1974 after a complete dictatorship, the Salazar dictatorship. And the communists actually had power in Portugal for the first two years after the revolution. And of course, everything changed in terms of the whole balance from, you know, from, uh, from um, in terms of the, the power of the people from having nothing now. And it was very, very difficult because then the, the communists, I think not infiltrated, but were, were a major and integrated part of the trade union movement. And that was very difficult because it was completely political. It was nothing to do with bringing people in and letting them enjoy the work and doing all this. Oh no, it was, it was absolutely, it was, you know, communism. Yeah. And everything that management wants to do is bad. Everything should be nationalized. Everything should be 
the people should control it. We don't want managers. We don't want owners, everything. And so that was difficult. That was difficult. And I didn't really make all that much progress there um, because, the, because the MD was of the same same thought, you know. He was from the, the ruling classes and um, and he said, no, no, you can't do it. No, no, this doesn't work with people. No. The people, you know, they'll, they'll stab you in the back. And so... So that was that was, and all that sort of took place between. I started doing that in 1974, and and as I say, I didn't I didn't have a great deal of influence in terms of well, not influ influence yes, but success in terms of getting the whole organisation to work the way I wanted it to do. Uh, but I learned a hell of a lot in terms of the different the different cultures and the way that people reacted differently in, in say in Portugal and Scotland and England and the Czech Republic and Germany and Sweden. I yeah. mean, I really enjoy the work I did in Sweden and they're very enlightened and switched on in Sweden. Um, and so that really was the sort of, um, that we, you could almost say that was the, 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 the fourth phase and I've got like one final bit really. And, um, that all came to an end in uh, with the, just after the twin towers after the uh, attack in New York. There was a there was a period of um, they didn't go into a full blown recession in the United States, but there was a massive downturn in business, and the company ended up in Chapter Eleven uh, bankruptcy, mainly because of the huge debts that it had, um, and it was uh, and then eventually it went into full what they call a chapter seven bankruptcy, which is what we would call normally call bankruptcy. And so the whole thing collapsed. It was taken over by a private equity company. And um, they asked me if I would, if I would, if I would stay on running the European part of the business because they bought that. And then I did that for, for maybe 12 months or so. And then they decided they were going to sell that business to another private equity company. And you know, it's like these guys, you know, the private equity model is basically you buy a company, you load it up with debt. The debt you put in, you take out as a dividend and put that in your back pocket. And then the company, basically 60, 65% of private equity investments end up in bankruptcy after right. they've taken out a bunch of money. And, um, and so I, I did that till about 19, uh, Five, and then I started my own bit. I thought enough of all this. I started my own business, but it wasn't in in industrial relations and training or anything like that. It was uh, we, we. It was in. Uh, we developed uh, new products for the um, for the railway industry, and we we were very very successful in terms of the the, the work that we did in the UK with with rail track as it was then network rail now. And a lot of the railway wagon builders, when they were building, rebuilding all the infrastructure and everything, so and that that went, that was very, very, very well. I enjoyed that. That was a new phase in terms of being involved in, you know, in product development, sales, and marketing, and promotion, and all the rest of it. And I really enjoyed that. And then, um, and and then, and then what happened? I was then bought. A little company was bought by another American company. And uh, so I then started working again for an American company, but I, I remained in the UK. In fact, I was living in Cardiff then. And, um, and then I moved back to Portugal because I, I lived in Portugal off and on now for 22 years. Right. 
So um, the um, so then what happened after after that is then the um, the American company that bought my company and it, it don't sound, it sounds grand but it wasn't it was it was a, a very small company and everything I made everything I did and this was the problem I had was also contracted yep. now the, when you do that if you've got very very high margins it's fine but when you're in a very competitive market and you subcontract all your manufacturing all the different things that go into making undercarriage systems for railway wagons or whatever Every company you're working with or who's supplying is making a profit. If you if you have got your own manufacturing facilities, that's not the case. You you, you manufacture your goods, you sell it, and hopefully you make a profit. But yeah. when everybody, when you've got ten suppliers and they're all making a profit, and then you put it all together and you want to sell it, there's there's, there's you know there's nothing left unless yeah. you're apple, unless you're Apple, and that's a completely different ballpark. I mean, Apple make virtually everything in China for peanuts and sell it for to the rest of the world for coconuts. I mean, that's the difference, isn't it? It's a peanut and it's a coconut. Yeah. That's why they make so much money. But they're very few and far between. Manufacturing, you know, on the shop floor, nuts and bolts, you can't do that because it's competitive. And so it was always just on the just on the margin and, and 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 then this american company was taken over by an even bigger american company and they said oh, we're doing all this work with this guy jim over there in in europe and phew, we're not making you know we're only making a tiny amount of margin because he's, he's making you know he makes everything outside he's you know they never had the manufacturing facilities and so they had the manufacturing facilities but they weren't geared up to the manufacturing the the processes and the techniques that we wanted in in Europe so that eventually well in fact I left I think yeah. I think that's the only time in my life I've been fired well wow. yeah because it was the the, the American company well I mean uh, fired in terms of I didn't uh, like what they offered so they said oh, yeah. goodbye and um and that that was sort of um so I'd not done the things I really wanted to do all the time, although I'd really got learnt a lot. And so this was then we were now by this time into the into the mid mid twenties. Uh, it was probably two well, it was two thousand and nine when I left the company. And then I did some terrible work. I hate using this word. I did some consultancy work. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had to advertise myself as a consultant. And so I did quite a bit of work on that, but it was, but then again, it was this was the, this was where the, the missing thing was. You know, you went in and you talked to someone and said, "Oh, you can help." And so it was sort of you were consulting; you weren't doing anything. That's why I call myself now a do consultant. You yeah. weren't you weren't really doing anything. You were it was part of you know, well, almost sketching out something that that you didn't really control. You did it. You put it all together, and this is what you should do. And then you walked away. Yeah. And surprisingly, even though it didn't work, a lot of the things that I did didn't take on and didn't work. And no one ever called me back and said, you're bloody useless. It didn't work. And I thought, this is like weird. And I, done, I did quite a bit. And some, some, was, some of the things I did were successful, but the majority weren't, not because of me, because they just didn't do it afterwards. Uh, but if, if a consultant comes in, then 
And the consultant goes, who's, to, who's there to do it? Is yeah. it the manager who didn't know anything about it in the first place? Or the guys on the shop floor are there? Oh, it just doesn't work. The consultancy just doesn't work. But no one ever, no one ever called me and said, you're useless. Yeah. It didn't wow. work. What a, what a bloody waste of time that was. And that's what, that was the message to me as well. Yeah. And then, oh. and this is, and really, this is the final thing. And I hope we have enough time to finish this off. We can call it phase five, which was the, my sort of towards the end of my um, full time working life, if you want to put it that way. I got a call from from uh, another headhunter who said, "Jim, we got, I, I want, we've got a problem. I've, I've got, a, I've got a client in South Africa, and he wants, he's got massive problems, and he wants." He's looking for someone like you to come and help him with his problems. And I said, not, not interested at all. I've never been to South Africa, and I've been all over the place. Never been to South Africa. But I have this vision of South Africa, you know, but I suppose you've never, people have never been and got this, this, you know, weird country with violence and all the rest of it. And I, just, and I said, no, I'm not, not interested. And he, he pestered me a couple of times, and it all went quiet. And I got a call and said, Jim, look, would you please meet with these people from South Africa? They were part of a huge, well, they were owned by Anglo-American. Massive, massive, massive company. And um, so I said, yeah, okay. And so, well, you have to come to, I was in Portugal. So you'll have to come up to London. They want to meet you in their, in their headquarters in London. So, okay, I went up there. And then it was a big, like a Zoom call, but it was sort of a, a teleconference with this huge screen that covered the whole wall. It was amazing. And the people from the, 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 from the company I went to, um, they started outlining all these problems they had, you see. And I'm listening to this, thinking you've got this all wrong. These aren't, these aren't the problems because, you know, with the people, are, our people are no good. They're unskilled. We need to improve them. Um, uh, Absentees and all these issues that we need. So we need a manager to come in um, and sort out the quality is bad. All this. <clears throat> I'm thinking, no, the problem they've got here really is it's simple. It's it's an industrial relations problem. It's not incompetence. Yeah. So I listened to them and I said. And then I agreed. I said, okay, I'll come over, but only for six weeks. That was the, that was the sort of time scale I put on and being able to help them in, the, in what they thought the problems were. Yeah. So I went over and did the six weeks. And then, well, I was doing the six weeks and they kept coming and talking to me. And, and I, this, this, you've got to make a presentation to the board of directors. And this is a big, big company. I mean, 8,500 people into all sorts, making, well, I don't want to go into all the details because I'll tell you it, it is and I'll get into trouble, but um, <laughs> you can work it out if you look at my uh, profile. And the, uh, and so they thought I was going to give them this big presentation about quality and this, you know, improving the technology and this and all that. Right. And I said, well, and I just did just one page and I put it on, on a, a PowerPoint. <clears throat> And when they saw PowerPoint come up, they thought they were all, okay, it's that I think when they get this PowerPoint, it was only one page. And they all, and it was like page one, and they knew there was no more pages to this. And so I just listed out the issues. And I said, that basically, the problem you've got here has got nothing to do with all these so-called 
technical problems, skill problems, and all the rest of it. It's, it's, it's your industrial relations. And we've not got enough time to go into all the details, but South Africa is a very is, is unique in terms of, currently I would say unique in terms of its industrial relations. Of course, all stemming back from its origins in apartheid and what happened yeah. after apartheid. And what's happened since in terms of the the consistent government of the ANC since 1994 to where are we are now. And basically, it was all the things that I'd seen all my life because the majority of the, majority of the supervi- supervision were white. And you think, oh, well, well, they're white. But in South Africa, white just doesn't mean white. It, there's, 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 you've got you've got the what the class is the old colonial whites, and then you've got the um, the um, the Africana, and they're two different, and that history goes back to the Boer Wars and all the rest of it, and then you've got the 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 um, the the black, and it, and it's not, and this is not these are not racist comments, but even in on the official government. Statistics you have to do every month that companies have to put down the number of black male employees, the number of black female employees, the number of coloured male employees, and the number of coloured female employees, and then the number of Asians. And then how many of those have got disabilities? And and so in if you talk about black and coloured, in South Africa, it's perfectly normal. It's not like, oh, you can't say that. That's a racist comment. It's it's in within the official, right? So it's not got to be um, taken as, um, as 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 a, as a racist comment. And I mean, they now sort of lumped it all together. Then it's called H. They refer to them as oh, they are H D S S. And I'm thinking, what the hell's an H D S A? And they're talking about people. I said, well, what's an HDSA? Oh, well, historically disadvantaged South Africans. And and we had, there was a lot within the company that fell into this. I mean, all sorts of problems. I mean, 25% of the workforce, of the workforce, that's a, of the workers of the employees were HIV positive, for instance. Yeah. And, that, and that has a whole lot of um, issues uh, with it. But it was the way they were being treated. They weren't unskilled. I mean, these are, these were all the people were, were basically time so They were apprentice trained people. But you got eleven official languages in South Africa, and these were like tribal different the different tribes who lose courses, etc. And you have that. So there was eleven official languages on all the forms. There was that number of people. The different uh, groupings in the company, but the majority were either Zulu or Corsa, um, and they didn't really get on well together. Historical conflicts from the end of apartheid when they fought each other. I mean, um, the ANC and the Inkatha movement—they were killing it. They, you know, they were fighting. There were battles in the factory that I was running where people were shot. From cranes with guys with it was unbelievable the things the stories I heard about this, and so it's all against this background, and they still felt felt disadvantaged, and so me coming along, and saying right guys, 
this is what because I, I I agreed to work for them full time. So they, they appointed me head of the I was became the head of the old division, and uh, and so then I got started. But it was you know with a thousand eight hundred people in different sites, and I started on the main site first, and I did a whole five day solid five day program. Um, along exactly along the lines that I'd done with uh, previously and the work I'd done with Sid. I'm starting going through the whole thing in exactly the same format. Unbelievable. I mean, did it when I first went in there and I walked through the plant, no one would not one person would look at me. I'd walk up to people and they'd immediately, you know, look down or pretend they were doing something. Because the, the I was, you know, they knew, I was a manager. I was like the top guy. They knew that by this band, this time. I, and did it, so they just didn't want to interact. It took me three months just to get, and by that time, everyone spoke to me. I knew where all the little hobby holes were and cubby holes where they used to go having their breaks, and I'd go in. I knew where they were having, I mean, legitimate breaks. I'd just like knock on the door and go in. And, and I'd say, any chance of a brew? Come on, right? And so, and they were like, they look at each other like this, yeah. and someone say, yeah, yeah, "Yeah, yeah," and I just sit down and have a chat. No, just having a chat, not saying, "Why are you in here drinking tea?" Because yeah. it was legitimate, anyhow. Yeah. Just, yeah. How are you doing? How's it going? What you know? And not promising anything, not giving anything, just talking to people. And I eventually got the whole organisation would say hello to me. They come up. Morning, Mr. Jim. Morning, Mr. Jim. And they shake your hand. And and, and I was old, I was 60-odd then, and I had white hair. And the one thing that they, they recognize and age, if you're old and you've got gray hair and you're wise, and there's a great deal of respect for old, for elder people, much more than you see anywhere else. Very, very respectful. And when elder people are respectful back, that's, that's, that's all you need. Yeah, and um, so I did a huge amount of things there in uh, in South Africa in terms of involving the people and you know continuous improvement programs and helping out with plant layouts, reorganizing layouts, um, and um, and then that um, and then I eventually I left in at the end when I came back, two thousand and twenty thirteen, yeah, twenty thirteen. And so that I was, that was a repeat, basically, of what I'd done in Leeds. And yeah. I left it in a much, much better situation. But now they're struggling again. I mean, South Africa's struggling. I mean, you know, the official unemployment rate's 35%. Uh, and, it's, and it's a lot higher than that. You've got, I mean, the problems I've got involved with, I mean, you've got one worker maybe looking, one worker's wage would be looking after, he'd be looking after, like, I think it was between, I think the average was six people. So one wage was supporting six wow. people. Wow. And, and this, I was this the plant I was in Johannesburg, which is not really typical of South Africa. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of them were migrant workers. They came in from the rural areas, and they then they came into work, and then they go home at you know at Christmas, which was the big holiday because it was the middle of summer there. And you know you got all the the problems of of where people lived and in the, in the in the townships that they were still living in, and people working nights who couldn't sleep during the day because I mean they're basically living in what we would say a tin, you know, corrugated roofs and walls and 
massive, massive problems. Oh boy, how rewarding was that? That was the most rewarding period of my life. I felt, and I still feel today, and I'm still in contact with it, and I do some, um, I'm not going to call it consultancy work, but people that I work with call me and say, I'm going to do things like I have a Zoom call now, and we'll we'll talk about things, and they'll bring the managers in or whatever, and we talk about it and explain things. So I'm still doing a little bit of that, but not a great deal. And it's all, I don't charge for any of that. It's all, I just do it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, And, um, but I, it's the proudest, honestly, it was, it's almost, it was almost, to me, it was almost like the culmination of everything I I believed in and done over the years. And it came with that I could make a massive, massive impact. Uh, I love that. I love that. Hey, um, the the boy from Charlie's not done so bad for himself, has he? He's not done bad as he's leaving school with a one all level in woodwork and, uh, and um, not, not not very good school reports. No, that is, I've done okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you have, you have, you have, and and I'm conscious of of the the time I've taken out of your morning today. Um, uh, I've got a couple of quick questions. If you had a choice, Jim, of taking your knowledge that you've got now and starting your career again, or having the lived experience that you've had. Which would you? Which would you do? Would you? Would you rather start the way you started with what you knew and then learn it as as you've done, or take your brain from now and 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 start with what you know? I would definitely take my brain. I wouldn't want to go through sixty years of of learning it all again. Yeah, because I've been working for sixty years. I would love. To have another, <laughs> I love to have another sixty years in. I did one of these uh, strength finder. I was I was going to do some work for PwC. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not an accountant or anything like that, but they had a, a lean division <laughs> consult. I mean, uh, and I had to do. They wanted me to do strength. It was called a strength finder. Way. Have to yeah. do all, and answer all these questions, and then then you get a report back. And, and mine was the number one thing was futuristic, and I thought about, and I never thought about myself as being futuristic, the futuristic organizer, and all this sort of thing. And so I read all, all about it, and it was absolutely, it was part of how the hell, it was absolutely spot on. And <laughs> and thinking, if you ever looking at any of my posts and things I do on on uh, on LinkedIn. Why I want another 60 years, and I'm not going to get it. I'm 73 now, but I'm fit and I'm healthy and I keep up, I'm active and all the rest of it. And I, I only feel like I'm 20 and I'm in, I, f- I feel like I'm in my mid-20s all the time. That's the problem. But the knees don't say that. And bloody, <laughs> you know, they, they say, no, nah, you're not, you're not. But my big thing at the moment is um, that there's three things that I would really absolutely desperately love to get involved with now one is the development and introduction of um fission nuclear fission reactors because i think this is where it's going to go and this will be significant both all three things significant in terms of uk manufacturing secondly would be the the development and manufacture of desalination plants thinking out of the box not just taking the typical things that they do now and then the third thing is the electrolysis of seawater to produce hydrogen 
because electrolysis and desalination are energy intensive. We can't do it. We just haven't got enough. And we cannot do it, not enough energy. There's a plant on the Thames estuary, a desalination plant. It's a reverse osmosis plant. But it costs 250 million. It can make 400,000 litres of fresh water a day. And it's not working because they can't, they, either, they can't afford to run it because of the power it needs. And there's some technical problems. And I think the only, the major manufacturers of desalination plants and electrolysis plants are all in Germany. Why is everything all in, always in Germany? Yeah. yeah. The Industrial Revolution started, we did everything. In 1852, in the United Kingdom, we made 90% of everything that was manufactured in the world was made wow. here in, 19, in 1852. And that's when the... Theory X and X management ideas started when we got people off the land and put them in factories. Yeah. And it's taken all this time to change it. And I think I'm an ambassador. I'm an ambassador for change. But if I could be involved in this in the future, because those three things would unlimited power, com completely total green power, not with all the problems of fission reactors with, with radioactive waste and all that stuff. And it's happening. It's happening now. I'd love to get involved with that. Desalination would provide, this is of seawater, nine-tenths of the Earth's surface is water. Salt water, we can't use it. Desalination would provide water yeah. if you had, with insufficient quantities if you had the power and the plants to do it for the entire world. Wow. We could irrigate. We have no water problem anywhere in the world. No one would go hungry. We could we could start reversing the problems of what the, of the damage that we've done to our planet. We could irrigate land. We could change from meat-based protein to vegetable-based protein. We can do all that if we have the water. We don't have it. We can get it. It's not a problem. And with regard to hydrogen, it's the same again. I stand when I go to Portugal or when I'm going down to the beach. I look and I set her on. She keeps saying, oh, not again. I said, just look at all that fuel. Just look at all that. We can burn that yeah. as far as the eye can see. And you go on a boat, even across the Bay of Biscay from Southampton to Santander, you can, can't see anything. Yeah, so, all you, so you, all you can see is water everywhere. And that water, is all, all it is, is hydrogen and oxygen. And so, you know, the... But it's very, very energy intensive to split it. If we had cheap, low cost, plentiful, or well, limitless energy, and it's got to be nuclear energy because it can't be wind and sun, they're, they're, they're supplements. But absolute base load, you know, absolutely guarantee you can get it when it's, when it's raining, windy, it's dark, it's light. It's got to be nuclear. And just imagine if you could. The, the 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 energy and fuel in the in the in the in the sea, we can from that we can get all the fresh water we need for the entire entire planet, and all the energy that we need in terms of, and it's green energy. The only green hydrogen energy is through electrolysis of, of water because hydrogen produced from oil, the byproduct of that of course is carbon anyhow 
And you know, this the the benefits of this in terms of uh, I mean, we could be we, we our country we could become completely self sufficient again. We got with it with limitless energy and uh, fuel and water. I mean, we could re, we could rejuvenate our our manufacturing industry. We could become the world leaders in the manufacturing supply of, uh, of, uh, of fusion reactors, of desalination plants, of, uh, of um, electrolysis plants. We can, we've got the, the, the talent we have in this country and the people that we produce. You're not telling me that we can't develop a better mousetrap than the ones that we've got now. Because as far as I can see it, there's not been a great deal of, of, of continuous improvement and product improvement in the, in the equipment that's available now. Basically, there's no incentive. Why would you spend and, and develop a huge um, electrolysis plant if no one can afford to run it and if it, if it won't, you know, no one will buy it? We've got one on the Thames. Okay, it's, not a, it's, it's, it's a, a desalination plant. They can't, and it's not running. And yeah. I've just been told today, I've got a horsebike band. We're, we're, I'm supplied by Thames Water. It's on bloody Thames. It's on the River Thames. Okay? Yeah. And Thames Water, oh, no, you've got to go to a horsebike band with shorter water. No, you have a plant there that can produce. It's only a small plant. 400,000 litres of water a day. And you can't run it. Yeah. It breaks down. <laughs> Come on. What, what keeps you going, Jim? What keeps you going? Because you, you, you're very passionate when you talk. And, and and you've got all of this energy. What is what is it that 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 that's feeding you? I don't know. It's. I mean, I've got a fantastic family. You know, I I, I don't talk a lot about my wife because I, I I try to keep my wife separate from my you know my business. So, but my wife is absolutely. She's supported me throughout my throughout my life. She's a she's a she's a, a Westmoreland girl. She's from Kendal. We got married in 1970. Well, we, we met in 1970. We got married in 1974. I've got two daughters. I've got five grandsons. And that, and I look at my grandsons, and I look at what's going on. And, I mean, this to me has been a wake-up call these last two years of the, with, the, with, the, with COVID and the pandemic and the lockdowns and the shutdowns and working from home. And the complete deterioration that's now taken place in services. I mean, I'm appalled, absolutely appalled at um, at what's going on now uh, with regard to well, with regard to public services, and and not in, not entirely with what's going on with regard to the present round of industrial disputes. I mean. You know, Ross says, "Well, you ought to get in there and get working with that lot, and get that lot sorted out." Well, yeah, it, it is, but <clears throat> it's the remnants of this. Is the it's almost to a certain extent the revenge of fact from the factory. There are certain elements, um, the um, within the trade union movement, which are purely in political. Every anybody with a half a brain knows that we've got to make. Uh, concessions and changes to practices that started in, in terms of the railway unions in the steam age. Some of those agreements that are still working to were signed in the steam when we still when we had driving steam locomotives and they ended in 1968. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just want to be 
sometimes I, I'm, I think I just want to get in there and I can, I can help, you know. And that's that's what I, I'm, I'm never going to do it. They'll never let you. They'll never let me near anything like this again. I don't suppose because it's vested interest in it all. That. But I know. I just I'm so frustrated. I know what we need to do. I know absolutely without any shadow of a doubt, we've got to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels because we don't have any or very little left. When a country like ours, where it's pouring down most of the time, and now we're short of water after four or five, well, we've had rain for about six weeks. It's pouring down now, actually. But, um, and that, you know, when you think that Thirlmere was built by the Victorians up in the Lake District, yeah. And the water from Thirlmere runs to Manchester and there's not a single pump. Right. It runs all the way from Thirlmere to Manchester under gravity. These were the Victorian engineers that didn't have AutoCAD and CADs and computers and, and all the things that we've got now. And they did that. And, and then this is, you know, in, in, and now here we are with all the advantages that we've got now, all the things we can do now. And we've got a bloody plant on the, on the Thames that can make water. And, it, and, and it's just accepted. Oh, it's, it's, too exp we can't, it's too expensive to run. Oh, we've got a maintenance problem with the, with the filters. And I just I can't accept this. Yeah. yeah. I, I, get that, I get that plant running in a month. Yeah. <laughs> I would. I'd get that plant running in a month. Without yeah. any problem at all. Yeah. No, no. And that's no. what drives me on. But just knowing what, but it's very frustrating because yeah. I'm not like, I'm not working like full time anymore. And I don't want, I don't want to be in the middle of it in one, you know, in one company. And I, and I don't really, I, I, I'll, I'll help anybody that wants any help in terms of the techniques of what they want, what they want to do, how they can do it, what they can achieve, as long as they're committed to it. I'm, I will never ever go to someone who says, "Can you? Oh, we want to do this. You know, we we want to do. Well, we want to do lean. Can you go and do lean for us? Or because yeah. you had a lot of success with it. No, the answer is no, no, yeah. not not unless you absolutely can, can convince me that you're willing to do it, that you're willing to, you know, respect your people, talk to your people take an interest in you know in in their needs and their problems and because and we don't yeah that has and, been uh, um, a theme running throughout this whole conversation the importance of of committed um leadership uh, that that's that's one thing that's come across really really strongly that and your and your passion for for, for what you've done and, and how you've done it in, in your journey i think if if people wanted to know more about you jim where would they go what would they do what's the best way to um well, I've got, I've, I've got, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I've got a LinkedIn profile, and I think everything you would need to, uh, to in terms of contacting me, talking. My phone number is on there. My email um, address is on there. It's a very, very. I used to have all pages and pages and pages of what I've done, you know. But I've scrapped all that now. I think I've just got, I've just got headlines of different places I've worked, and my introduction is about that much. But I've done it, you see. I'm a doer. And I'm really interested in people who want to do things and yeah. how you do it. I'm a firm believer. It's, it's, it, all the problems are in the middle. The problems are in the middle in terms of when you're trying to do these things in the middle management, they're the problem. And then the other problem, and you look at it, you've got the, you've got the, the why 
and the what or the the aim and the purpose or the mission and the vision and everybody and, and but that's not where the problem is everybody can do that because you don't have to do anything about why and what what do you do oh this is the idea and this is what what and, but you don't do anything that doesn't that's just words just words and a dream and an idea the only thing that matters the thing that the critical thing is the how and what you do not what you say what you yeah. do when you walk around and you meet people and you go and talk to your people and you respect people from the you know the humblest person to the you've just got to be a normal human being they're all the same you're the we're born and we die. We need water. We need fresh air. We need shelter. We need clo- And those are the things that matter. And that's what everyone's aiming for. I mean, Maslow, okay, that so-called hierarchy of needs. By the way, Maslow never, ever called it higher. He never called it a hierarchy. He called it steps. And it's very, very absolutely relevant today. Just have a look at that. But don't think about it being a hierarchy of everybody aiming for this. It's not like that. You can be doing all things at the same time. And then the other thing, if you look at Hertzberg in terms of motivation, look at those motivational factors on Hertzberg. It's everything, every single thing that these guys in South Africa told me would motivate them. And it's all on there. It's not new. It's yep. not new. Really intelligent people have studied this and they, and they know and they understand it. But we don't do anything about it. we got shelves and shelves of books with all these things and motivation this and that and lean and the machine that changed the world and the tea. Uh, so what? <laughs> One of the best books I read without any shadow of a doubt is, is, um, is McGregor's um, um, The Human Side of Enterprise. And I think another one, a very enlightening book, is The Goal. And in terms of theory of constraints, I mean, I know it's, you know, I mean, but that is very, very powerful in terms of the two things on it. A theory of constraints, you've really got to understand constraints. And the other one is throughput accounting. Now, forget conventional. Well, you can't con- forget conventional accounting because you've got to comply with the rules and the regulations in terms of reporting. But in terms of your factory or your workshop or whatever business you've got, the thing you've got to really understand and start looking at, even if it's like a little mini spreadsheet you do on your own, is throughput accounting. Yeah. Is looking at the the, the stages and, and not the conventional. I mean, you can make money, you can make profit without without uh, while you're losing money, according to you know. Because what we do, we do something, and then we add. Oh well, it's cost us five pound fifty to do that, so that now is worth. £65 for material plus £5.50 for the work we've done. And then it goes along to the next stage and somebody else spends an hour on it and that's another £10.50. And then and this builds up all the way through. And then I've been in situations where we've had record sales in companies, record sales, and the accountant said, yeah, we're not so good last month. What? That's still we had, yeah, but the problem is you reduce the work in progress. <laughs> Yeah, the working progress has gone down. The whole the bloody value's gone down now in the company. So you've only made whatever. Because if you keep adding all these costs on right up until the point you sell it, 
and then there's 3% left when you sell it, you get that 3% because yeah. all the value comes out. Yeah, yeah. Right? What you've got, what you've got is cash, cash. So, and but we don't consider it because it's all about the 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 bottom line. What is the you know, the, and the institutional investors and all the rest of investing in the companies. That's what they're looking at, and they want they want guy they want hard nuts on the top. They want if you've got someone like me, you say, oh, no, 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 we, we, he's weak, he's soft, he bloody talks to the people. We want. We want a nutter. We want somebody who's going to go in there and beat beat the bastards up when they do, when they don't perform and fire them and get. I mean, I've been I've been to companies and and I've, I've, I've talked to MDs and you know, in, in terms of jobs and things and they'll say, well, you've got a challenge here because basically the, the you know most of the people we got here are crap. Yeah. <laughs> what? But but you employed them. Yeah. I know. But, there's nobody else. I mean, we can't get anybody else. So, you, 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 you know, you, 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 you've got a problem, major problem from just straight away because they're bloody useless. They're absolutely useless. <laughs> and, this is, and I think, well, you took them on. Yeah, honest, honestly, there's, Jim. There's nobody else been, available. This, this has been hugely, highly entertaining, fascinating. Um, and and, and I've, there's been so much that you've shared in the time that we've had this morning um, and so many... Uh, I don't know what, what what the right phrase is, but so many nuggets of value that you have <laughs> shared throughout. Um, well, honestly, your your, your passion um, comes through immensely in 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 your story, your journey, and and what is truly important on this on this quest for for improvement. And and so, um, in we we say as a business, as Get Knowledge, myself and Jason, we say that we we champion people in the improvement equation, and and that's kind of our our, our little strapline. And and what you've <clears throat> articulated beautifully through your journey and through your story is just the importance of people and treating people like people. So um, so thank you for that. Simple um, but not easy. Yeah, dead right. Dead right, dead right. Th thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for joining me, um, and and on on this two hundredth episode. Um, and and thank you, thank you so much for for just sharing so openly, candidly, and just honestly your your journey and story. So so thank you for one Charlie fella to another. I know how thank about you. that, eh? Two Charlians, that's amazing, isn't it? It amazing. is. It is. Thank you very much, Jim. The centre of the universe. It is indeed. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I say. Yeah, it is. It is. The world's the world's university. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Dead right. Dead right. Thank you so much, and good luck okay. with with everything you've got going on. Great. Okay. You're welcome. Leah. It's been it's been an honour to be on your two hundredth podcast. I'm absolutely uh, I'm honoured for that, and I, I really appreciate. It. Cheers, Jim. Thank you very much, and on very best of luck. And everybody else is going to listen to this. Thanks for listening to Business Problems Solved. You can contact Lee on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lee Horton, the Business Problem Solver, or via visiting www.leehorton.com for more content and to solve your business problems. And remember, saying you know how to do it is not doing it. <laughs>